0: The title of this morning's message is, but he Giveth more grace. Did you kind of get the grace theme (laughs) we're looking for today? (laughs) This morning, I want to talk to you, or continue to talk to you through the book of James regarding prayer. What I hope you come away with is yet more confidence. I know I've said that several times before regarding our little exploration of the book of James and prayer. But this is still my objective, for us to see how understanding our true identity and God's true identity facilitates confidence and faith in our hearts. So just as a reminder, James is writing to Jews, (laughs) the 12 tribes of Israel, both saved Jews and unsaved Jews. And since he's writing to a mixed multitude, he sometimes sounds like, Jesus talking to Pharisees. And then at other times, he sounds like Jesus talking to his disciples. So we need to approach what he has written with an if this shoe fits approach. If it fits us, then we need to take heed. If it doesn't, we can let it pass by. (laughs) Now, in actuality, nothing that James wrote was written with us in mind. (laughs) we have to remember that because he's not talking to us he's talking to people of that day so with that in mind we need to differentiate what can and should be applied to us and what cannot and should not be applied to us like the word adulteresses in chapter 4 verse 4 I have it for you in the revised version ye adulteresses know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God Whosoever, therefore, would be a friend of the world, maketh himself an enemy of God. The last time I ministered, I presented a case to show that the word "adulteresses" is aimed at the unbelieving Pharisee types of that day. And again, we can see it in Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 and 39. Then certain of the scribes and of the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee, but he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given to it, but the sign of the prophet Jonas. The word here, adulterous, is from the Strong's Concordance number 3432, and it simply means adulteress. It's female. <laughs> it's a feminine noun. <laughs> it means to be unfaithful or to be an adulteress, either literally or figuratively. It can be translated as adulteress, a person, adulterous as an adjective or adultery. All three are appropriate for this word. But this particular word is never used in reference to Jesus's believers. Only to the unbelieving Jews of that day. Jesus had a very mixed audience all of the time. We're very much aware of the fact that how cantankerous (laughs) the ruling pharisees were at that time and they were very persuasive in turning people away from christ so he throughout his ministry speaks directly to the pharisees and tells them that they're an adulterous generation they're evil now they would not have agreed with jesus (laughs) but see the jewish history is strewn with the fact that israel as a whole was called an adulterous wife, most of her history. <laughs> it's because of that, that they rejected Christ. They were never faithful to the one true and living God. So when he showed up on earth, they didn't suddenly become faithful. <laughs> they rejected him because they had always rejected him. So the word adulterers or adulteress says, refers to Israel at that time, the unbelieving Israel. I want to read verse four again. It says, ye adulteresses, know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Enmity means hateful. <laughs> hateful and hostile. <laughs> does that sound like a believer in Jesus? No, it does not. It doesn't refer to believers in Jesus. It's, he's referring to the Jews who are trying to take control of everything. But then he goes on. Whosoever. Wait a minute. We went from unbelieving Israel to whosoever whosoever would be a friend of the world, maketh himself an enemy of God. The word friend is covenant talk. Abraham was God's friend. God was Moses' friend. They spoke face to face. Friend, the word friend implies covenant. So when a believer in Jesus says, I want to be friends with the world, he's not talking about unredeemed people, people who have not yet Receive the Lord Jesus Christ. He's talking about the systems of this world, the God of this world, the darkness of this world. He's talking about people who willingly and deliberately seek to meet their needs, just like an adulterer seeking from the world instead of from her heavenly husband. James here is still talking about source. What are we pulling from? Where do you get your words? Where do you get your wisdom? Where do you get your provision he's still trying to get them to think about source someone who goes to the world is going to the world as a source to get their needs met so who or what is our true source is it the world is it ourself or is it god james has already asked his readers to recognize the source of their words flesh head we have flesh head god gave me this word a few months back Because it's very easy for people to say, well, that's of the flesh. As if flesh is part of who we are. And it's not. (laughs) Okay, we have source. We have the one true living God in all of his fullness. We can pull by the Spirit. God, (laughs) we can pull on him. He's always our source. But everything that tempts us to go into the world is flesh head. Okay? We are not two people. I don't have an evil Valerie on one shoulder and a a good Valerie on the other. No, I am one spirit with the living God. I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I have everything I will ever need for life and godliness. (laughs) Flesh, what we've been programmed. Okay, even your brain comes up with thoughts all by itself. (laughs) It will tell you you're hungry when you're not. (laughs) It will tell you, uh, ice cream will make you happy, when that's not true, (laughs) temporarily. (laughs) When people say flesh, you can't always tell what it is they're talking about, what source. We don't have two natures. There's not a good one and an evil one. There's only one and it's all good but our brain is not always our (laughs) front. So we have to understand that when we think something that we recognize is not from God, it's not because there's something wrong with who I am. For years, if I had a bad thought, oh my gosh, Lord, I must have an evil heart of unbelief. (laughs) And you fast and pray and, and repent for thinking bad thoughts because there's obviously something wrong with who I am. Because if I was really the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, I certainly wouldn't have thought that thought. That's all wrong. You see, that keeps us chasing our tail. God, please fix me. 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 God, I'm broken and I'm a mess. God, please fix me. It doesn't work. He's already fixed us. (laughs) He can fix our thinking. He can fix our believing. But he's already done the fixing. He killed me off and started over brand new, married to God himself. There's nothing wrong with who and what we are in Christ. So when I say fleshhead, I say that on purpose because I want you to think thinking, believing, misunderstanding, being deceived. All of that is possible in our little old fleshhead. (laughs) So James asks his readers basically over and over, where is your source? What are you pulling from? When you speak to somebody you don't like, where are you pulling from? (laughs) Because you'll be able to tell. (laughs) Wisdom. What wisdom are you pulling from? The wisdom of this world or the wisdom of the Holy Spirit? More of where our prayers come from. What source are we praying out of? Are we praying out of our flesh or we pray now our spirit man. The context of verse four is prayer, specifically praying amiss, which is simply praying from a selfish motive. And yes, anybody can do it. <laughs> the unbelieving Jews did it all the time <laughs> because they did not have faith in God to provide for them. So they were always asking amiss when they got around to asking the unbelieving Jews at that time were always trying to bring forth in their own power and their own effort what they thought Israel was supposed to have, which was a military Messiah, which is not what God brought forth. (laughs) So they rejected him. And Old Testament Israel continuously, continuously rejected the one true and living God and purposely went after false gods. Now false gods are not fake gods. False gods are spiritual entities that do have power, but none of it's good. <laughs> so they were always going to demonic entities and praying to them and worshiping them and offering them sacrifices to get what God said he would give them freely <laughs> if they stayed in terms of, inside the terms of their covenant. So that's why God called Israel adulteresses. They would actually give themselves to other so-called gods in worship in an effort to get what they wanted, illicitly. So, in verse 4, James is speaking to two different groups. He does this a lot. (laughs) Those who are currently playing the harlot, unbelieving Jews, and those who might be thinking (laughs) about playing the harlot as a means of getting their needs met. So, James says, whosoever, therefore. Therefore means, in light of what I just told you, that those who go to the world actually hate and are hostile to God. In view of that, make your decision. Whoever would be a friend, a covenant partner. This is a lot more serious than people think it is. (laughs) You know, in my little holiness church, worldliness was, you know, ladies cutting their hair or wearing makeup or jewelry or slacks. worldliness, worldliness, worldliness. That's not worldliness worldliness is going to the world and saying, you're going to meet my needs. You're going to give me my value. You're going to give me my joy. You're going to give me my happiness. You will supply from outside in. Where God says, I got a better way. I'll just give you everything. (laughs) Everything you need for life and godliness. And you just work that out by faith in your life. I will be your joy. I will be your peace. I will be your love. I will be your truth. I will be everything you need. But Often, young believers in particular, they hear the world, like with alcohol, they hear the world say, oh, this is how you have fun. You just get drunk out of your, you know, skull. (laughs) And that's fun. You ever been around a whole bunch of drunks? It's not fun. (laughs) They think they're having tons of fun. They're not having fun. People that are in their right mind go, no, that's not fun. (laughs) because it's not it's so detrimental they want to go to the world and do things the way the world does it in order to receive apart from god what they actually want people that um date unbelievers on purpose (laughs) because the world says you can just date whoever you want god says It's not a good plan. You need to be equally yoked. You need someone who lives in the light the same way the way you live in the light. People who are unregenerate are living in darkness and they're going to get very mad at your light (laughs) once they marry you. (laughs) It's going to the world to try to get from the world what God said he would give us freely. And yes, Christians do sometimes fall into that. And he's saying, think about this. (laughs) Don't do it. By doing it, you set yourself against God. I know of several young men who have decided that the pastor's daughter is beautiful and she obviously wants to marry them. (laughs) Even when that's not the case. (laughs) But they've decided, this is what I want. So I'm just going to believe that this person is for me. Now, I'm not talking to anybody here. <laughs> over and over, I've had young men go out into the world, sleep with any, anybody and everybody, sometimes anything and everything, thinking that's going to meet their need until they get a wife. Problem with that is, when they're out in the world doing whatever with whoever, they're setting themselves in the opposite direction of what God has for them. When you're choosing the world, you're automatically rejecting what God has for you. We can't have what God has for us <laughs> by going to the world to try to get it. It's the same thing that Israel did, and it doesn't work. So when James says, whosoever therefore, he means in light of the truth that it doesn't work, <laughs> that it makes you hostile to God if you live that way. And what happens is they tie God's hands the word here says it makes he who would be a friend of the world maketh God his enemy. God is never anybody's enemy. God doesn't have any enemies. But when we go to the world, we automatically put God in opposition to us. He wants righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. (laughs) The world doesn't. The world doesn't want what God has to offer. So when we go to the world thinking, that's going to get rid of my loneliness. That's going to meet the need of my heart. That's going to take care of me. That's going to make me happy. They're actually telling God, no, I won't wait on you. (laughs) I will do it myself. You're taking too long. I'll do it myself. And they actually end up tying God's hands. You can't be at the right place at the right time if you're off doing your own thing. (laughs) The ways of this world are utterly corrupt. They are the very works of darkness and God cannot and will not bless darkness. He can't bless those relationships. To bless means to empower to prosper and God will not empower evil to prosper. (laughs) So he stands in opposition, opposite of them. He keeps trying to woo them into doing things his way But he has to stand in opposition. He has to wait for you to come back to your senses. (laughs) So whoever wants to walk in darkness can, even if they're believers. God will let you. But you'll find out it doesn't work. So here he's warning them. Whosoever would be a friend of the world maketh himself an enemy of God. You can't have what God wants and what the flesh wants at the same time. Many times young believers in particular live out of their flesh head instead of out of their true identity as sons and sponsorants of God. And that's because a lot of them simply just don't know their real identity, who they really are, what really happened to them. (laughs) They don't believe they actually died (laughs) and got raised to life again. So they believe the lie that they have to bow to the world's ways of doing things in order to meet their needs and obtain their desires. But when they do, they find that just like the unbelieving Jews of the Old Covenant, they will find that when they ask amiss, they receive not. Which reminds me of a situation my daughter is dealing with. My daughter Sarah has had her second litter of poodle puppies. They're purebred poodles. And the first time around, everything went really well, and she sold them all. And everything was a really nice experience for her. This time it hasn't been that way. (laughs) One of the things she does is she advertises on Facebook. And she's been very surprised at how cutthroat and underhanded other breeders are treating her. Other breeders are actually going onto her page and insulting her, trying to insinuate that she has no integrity and that the puppies that she's offering are not what she says they are. None of which is true. So she's been having a really hard time with all these other breeders lying to her, bad-mouthing her, so that they can steal away her customers. It's awful. (laughs) Not only that, but out of the people that contact her, she finds that most of them are lying to her. (laughs) They misrepresent themselves and what they want and, and, and their ability to take care of. These puppies? Now, Sarah is very particular. She, she has taken the responsibility to find good people and good homes for these puppies. So she has references. You have to fill out an application. You have to fill out a history. She has to know how you've treated your previous pets. You have to fill out a vet history so that she knows you actually take care of the dog. <laughs> and what she finds is people lie. The references for the vet don't belong to the person they say they do. Over and over, she said, out of 100 offers, interests, maybe 90 of them have lied to her, trying to, one, scam her out of money <laughs> and get a hold of the puppy. You see, what they do is they buy puppies cheap and then resell them. So they're doing all the things the world says you have to do to be successful. What, you want to be a successful breeder? This is how you do it. You undermine somebody else. Well, Sarah says, you know, liars don't get puppies. (laughs) If you're a liar, you're not getting a puppy (laughs) because I'm not going to bless your obstinance and dishonesty and darkness. God cannot bless darkness. But so much of the world operates just like that. If I'm going to get ahead, I have to step on you. And they do. These unscrupulous people, have bought into the lie that they have to do whatever they think is necessary in order to get what they want. And yeah, sometimes they do get what they want. It doesn't matter, God can't bless them or empower them to prosper. It's not going to work out well (laughs) because they have set themselves in opposition to God by operating in darkness. So they only get what they can produce by their own efforts, just like the Old Testament Jews who dug their own cisterns and came up empty. As we continue in verse five, I have it for you in two translations. And that's because the experts do not agree on how to best translate it. And I can see why. (laughs) We know James is talking about source. Where are you praying from? Are you praying from flashed or are you praying from the spirit man? The problem is theologians aren't sure which source James is actually referencing. And it makes a difference. (laughs) Chapter four, verse five says in the revised version, Or think ye that scripture speaketh in vain? Now what you have to know here is there is no scripture to go reference. Usually when you see that in your Bible, there'll be a little reference to tell you where they got it from the Old Testament. No such scripture. (laughs) They've searched all the Old Testament manuscripts, the Apocrypha, the Jewish writings of all of their stuff. No such scripture. They say things like somewhere in Isaiah or somewhere in the Old Testament scriptures, it says this, and you can usually go find it. So what they think is what James has done, he says he's taken the concept and put it in his own words. <laughs> scripture does say this, but not exactly in these words. That's why we can't necessarily understand how to best interpret this scripture. We don't have the actual first reference. Doth the spirit which he made to dwell in us long unto envying. You have to know that envying usually refers to The breeders that are (laughs) harassing Sarah. (laughs) It's about envy. You see, envy isn't, boy, I'd like to have a house like you have. Envy is I don't want you to have that house. I want it. Envy doesn't want anyone having something better than they have. They actually want what belongs to somebody else. Another reason why (laughs) the scripture becomes a little tricky. In this version, scholars decided to use a small S in the word spirit to indicate that it's not the Holy Spirit. So it kind of looks like he's saying that the human spirit is the one envying and lusting, which would be true if we were not saved. (laughs) It comes out of who we are. Lust and envy come from either a flesh-headed thinking believer or an unregenerated heart of an unbeliever. I like the way this translation is worded. But I would make the letter S in the word Spirit a capital letter to definitely indicate the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit definitely does not cause us to lust and envy. So the answer to the question would be, no. <laughs> does the Spirit, does the Holy Spirit that he made to dwell in us long unto envy? Absolutely not. Makes perfect sense. <laughs> now we could also leave it the way it is and understand that it is about an unregenerated spirit. The answer to the question would be, yes, (laughs) it does come from who you are. (laughs) Both of those work. You can see why translating this is a little hard because there are no capital letters in Greek. We really don't know what he's trying to say specifically, but we can make it work (laughs) both ways. (laughs) I have the same verse in the international standard version. And it says, Or do you think the scripture means nothing when it says that the spirit that God caused to live in us jealously yearns for us? I personally like this translation too because of our context. James is talking about the unbelieving adulteresses and those who might think about acting like an unbelieving adulteress. (laughs) Those translators chose to capitalize the word S in this particular version, to indicate that the source of the jealousy is the Holy Spirit. Now, that doesn't sound quite right either, does it? (laughs) Because everywhere you look, jealousy is a sin. We're admonished not to participate in jealousy. What do we do with this? In fact, some theologians take great exception to this word jealousy being used in this translation. But I believe it can be appropriate because of Exodus 34, 14 which says this, for thou shalt worship no other God. For the Lord, Yahweh, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. This refers to God's kind of jealousy. And God's jealousy is not like human jealousy. Just like God's love is not like human love. Human love is basically earned. You love me, I will love you. <laughs> it Works well that way. God says, I will love you even if you never love me. God's love is higher. A man who is jealous of his wife's attention towards another man is not concerned about what is good for his wife. <laughs> He's concerned about what's good for himself. <laughs> and he says, My wife with somebody else is not a good idea. He's concerned about himself. He wants his wife to be faithful to him for his own happiness and that's because man's jealousy is always self-centered but God's jealousy is agape love centered God is jealous for his people not of their attention toward another spiritual entity God is jealous for his people because he only wants good for his people God told the Israelites that they shouldn't give to other gods what belongs to him, which is worship. And that's because false gods could not give them what they were really looking for. True love, true peace, true prosperity, true life. God's jealousy is protective. He told them, don't go worship other gods. It doesn't work out well. (laughs) They did it anyway. (laughs) God's jealousy is for us so that we can have the best of what he wants for us. He doesn't want us to live a lower kind of life, which is what the world offers. Every once in a while you hear somebody say, oh, he married up. (laughs) Meaning you've got a good one. (laughs) Okay, well, this idea of covenant is you married down. You're going to the world to give you something it doesn't even have. And so God says, no, I'm jealous for you. I want you for myself because I want what's good for you. God's jealousy isn't about him being happy. God's jealousy is about us being happy. God wants what's good for us and for our happiness, not what's good for him and his happiness. God is always for us and never against us. The Apostle Paul also references godly jealousy in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 2 and 3, which says, For I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy, For I've espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety or craftiness, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ." The Apostle Paul was being protective, (laughs) jealous for them to have what's good and not what was false. The Apostle Paul was being protective towards the Corinthians, wanting to warn them against the false, self-serving, so-called apostles who would want them to add some kind of self-works to the finished works of Jesus for salvation and for approval. He didn't want them to turn away from the plain, unadulterated grace of the true gospel of Jesus Christ. He was afraid that they would accept complex and deceptive teachings regarding so called other Jesuses and other Gospels and simply disregard the simplicity that is in Christ, or in this case, towards Christ. The word simplicity carries the idea of singleness, to be later focused in one direction, which was on the truth that Christ and Christ alone is the author and the finisher of our faith and our salvation. So the apostle Paul reminds the church that she is the pure bride of Christ and that she is set apart unto Jesus as her groom. And he, as the friend of the bridegroom, seeks to protect her from the lying and deceiving suitors who would try to seduce her away from her bridegroom. In other words, he wanted to prevent Jesus' bride from trusting in herself, (laughs) or in any of the Old Covenant works of the law as a way to help themselves to apprehend what's already in their salvation package. Salvation is of Christ and all of grace so that it can be all of faith. There is only one Savior and one true gospel, the gospel of God's amazing grace through the cross of Jesus Christ. And we can see this in John 3, 16 and 17 so very familiar but it says so very much that we don't actually hear (laughs) for God so loved the world this would have made the Jews mad (laughs) no he doesn't he loves Israel all y'all we don't need you (laughs) for Jesus to say for God so loves the whole world you've already made all the unbelieving Jews totally upset he so loved everyone in the world, all of humanity, that he gave. Grace gives. Grace supplies everything we need for life and godliness. He gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God's kind and quality of life starting now. (laughs) For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Sozoed. Saved, healed, delivered, protected, provided for, made whole. Sozoed. By grace through faith. So the Apostle Paul. Points believers to her true identity. (laughs) True identity, bride of Christ. (laughs) And James and Paul remind us that God is jealous for his bride, for his people and wants only to protect them from the destructive lies of the enemy. So regarding prayer and asking God for things, Whichever source verse 5 pertains to, (laughs) whether it is the unregenerated heart of an unbeliever or the flesh-headed thinking of a born-again believer, or even the Holy Spirit reminding us of who and what we are, God's answer to all of them is the same. Verse 6, But he giveth more grace. (laughs) It doesn't matter if you're an unbeliever. It doesn't matter if you're a believer who's having troubles. <laughs> it's all of grace. He giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. He doesn't just give more grace. He gives mega grace. The word more is mega, big Big grace, exceedingly abundant, more than we can ask or imagine grace. (laughs) Everything you need for life and godliness, grace. Apart from your works. If you're naughty, He still loves you and He's going to bless you. It doesn't matter if you make mistakes, He loves you and He's going to bless you. You're His, you're His bride, you're His kid. He refuses to let you try to take care of yourself. (laughs) Let me love you. Grace is God's absolutely free, loyal, loving kindness. Years ago, real early in my Christian walk, the people at my little holiness church would pray for people to get healed. Lord, please heal Aunt so-and-so, but if not, give her grace. I thought, what is this grace? Doesn't sound like a very good thing. (laughs) It's what you get instead of what you ask for. It's like your mom saying, no, You can't have ice cream. Have some broccoli. (laughs) You're not going to be happy with that. (laughs) My little holiness church had the idea that grace was, you know, to, to help you be happy with what you don't get. What? Is that what we see in scripture? Is that a good husband? I don't think so. Grace is God's absolutely free, loyal, loving kindness. When God gave us his son, he gave us his grace. He gave us himself and all that he has and all that he is. He has invited the whole world to be his covenant friend, his beautiful bride, his born-again son, his precious purchased bondservant and his personal and powerful legal representative on the earth. (laughs) In his grace, he has provided our righteousness and our holiness. It's a gift. He has given us his Holy Spirit and empowered us with all, yes, all of his graces and gifts. We lack no good thing. Now, either God is true or God is a liar. He says you have everything you need for life and godliness. He says you have the fullness of who he is, and you can operate by faith in all of those graces. They're not badges. <laughs> like the gifts of, the, of speaking in the Holy Spirit. Everybody has that. They just don't know they have it. When I was first saved, I ran into all kinds of granola Christians. Did you ever meet those granola Christians? Fruits and flakes and nuts. (laughs) And they would say, you have to speak in tongues or you're not saved. And I thought, well, what does speaking in tongues do for you? And they really didn't have an answer. stuff. (laughs) it's not bad. See, I'm I'm authentic. (laughs) The Holy Spirit prays through us when we don't know how to pray when we don't know the right things to ask for, when we don't have the wisdom we need, when we don't have what we need to operate in the fullness of who we are. It is a gift and you already got it. (laughs) It's not a badge. (laughs) It's an opportunity. So for the unregenerate heart that's full of lusting and coveting and fighting and warring, we say, come unto Jesus. Stop striving and fighting and trying to make yourself good enough to be blessed. Let his blood and your mouth testify that he has made you the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. It doesn't matter how long you've rejected him. He loves you and he wants you to be his. Let him give you his life and his love and his joy and his peace all as a gift of his grace and for the flesh headed believer that struggles with not really knowing who and what he really is we say come unto Jesus and listen to the Holy Spirit and like one of the songs that says look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace our father has already granted us everything we need for life and godliness through his great and precious promises there is no need for us to lust or envy what other people have my daddy is rich (laughs) he owns the cattle on a thousand hills there's nothing he can't do he can bring you a dutch oven just like that If we find ourselves struggling with envy or jealousy, it is because we have forgotten our true identity, the bride of Christ, a son of God, a bondservant of our Father and our Jesus, and God's legal power of attorney agent. So when we pray, we can trust our heavenly husband to provide for us and to lead us into all of his will for us but we do need to bring our flesh head into submission to God's will for us. But he giveth more grace, mega grace, wherefore, consequently, in light of this truth, that in light of the truth that he giveth more grace, God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Now, I looked up humble in the Webster's 1828 Dictionary. This is a very religious idea, <laughs> of what it is to be humble or to have humility. It says, to be humble is to be lowly, modest, meek, submissive, opposed to the proud, haughty, arrogant, or assuming. In an evangelical sense, having a low opinion of oneself and a deep sense of unworthiness in the sight of God. See, religion says, see, you're nothing and you know it. yes right you stay down there in the dirt (laughs) it's a very bad idea of what humility is very bad very dangerous to the church the church has believed this you are nothing and by the grace of god you're saved (laughs) they got the grace part right (laughs) a better definition would be google's dictionary which defines submission And it defines it as the action or fact of accepting or yielding to a superior force or to the will or authority of another. That's a very good definition of what it means to be humble. For believers to be humble or to have humility is to accept God's view and opinion over us, over our own opinion. God always operates from truth. And so does humility and humbleness. God is not interested in us having some deep sense of unworthiness. That's counterproductive to going into the world and saving it. (laughs) That's a fleshhead evaluation. God wants us to accept his view and opinion of us, which is that we are as valuable to him as Jesus. So to try to work up some bad feelings about ourselves, (laughs) about who and what we are is not humility, it's stupidity. It's counterproductive to you walking in the fullness of who you are. Humility is submitting yourself to God's truth. If God says, I am as valuable to him as Jesus, then he's right. (laughs) True humility submits itself to God's view and opinion. So if submitting to God's view and opinion is humility, what would pride be? Not submitting to God's view and opinion. I have the Webster's definition for pride. It's not bad. (laughs) Webster says to be proud is to have inordinate self-esteem, possessing a high or unreasonable conceit of one's own excellence, either of body or mind. Now that's a pretty good definition. Those who are proud get their sense of value from their own point of view. They're very impressed with themselves (laughs) and they set their value based on how they look, how smart they are, how much money they have. Their value comes from the outside, not the in. But they are actually just taking credit for all the things that God has given them. (laughs) Smart people are smart because God made them that way. (laughs) Not because there was something that they made themselves smart. It's actually taking credit for what God has gifted them with. It's really quite silly. What I want you to see is that they prefer their own view and opinion over God's view and opinion. So if God says that I'm as valuable as Jesus, and I say, nope, that's not true. No, I'm not that important. I'm just a worm, God. I don't even know why you saved me. (laughs) Then I'm actually in pride, preferring my own lousy view and opinion over God's true opinion, his view and opinion. So even when you're trying to make yourself quote unquote humble, you actually end up over in pride because you're not submitting to what God says is right and true. So how is it that God resists the proud? We know they exist. (laughs) How does he resist them? He stands in opposition to their point of view. He tries to tell them who they really are. He tries to let them know (laughs) that they don't have to go to the world for what they need. He wants to help them, but they're operating in darkness and they don't want his help. They just want their own way. Those who are proud aren't willing to submit themselves to God's view and opinion. The humble, those willing to submit themselves and their views and opinions, to God's views and opinion, get grace. And not just grace, but mega grace, superabounding grace. So, since mega grace is what we all want, <laughs> what do we do? We do verse 7. <laughs> submit yourselves, therefore, to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Who doesn't want to submit themselves to mega grace? God who is the God of all comfort, God of all peace, the God who is himself agape love, God who only wants what's good for us, the God who only wants us to know him and his presence and his heart for us. Why would we not want to submit ourselves to that? When we submit ourselves to God, we are automatically resisting the devil. To resist is to stand in opposition. And that's what God does. He says, no, I'm not going to help you hurt yourself. I'm not going to help you kill yourself. I'm not going to help you destroy your life. I'm not going to help you. I'm going to stand here. I'm going to send people (laughs) to speak to you and to show you the truth of what you are in Christ. I love how James here just says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. You see, he isn't any big deal. (laughs) He will tell you he is. But God says, all we have to do is ignore him. Stand and say, uh-uh, sorry, not going to the world for what my father has already gifted me. I'm not going anywhere else but to my father. You are not a big deal. You are not scary. You are not powerful. <laughs> I am a son of the living God and you're nothing. And that's the, really the mindset we need to have regarding Satan. He is nothing. He lies <laughs> all day long, but that's all he can really do. He tries to get us over into a false identity that he is somehow bigger than us, more powerful than us. He's nothing, defeated, no feet, can't run anywhere. (laughs) Verse eight says, draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Drawing nigh is simply calling on his name any time of the day. Just calling on his name is drawing nigh to him. James, being a Jew, thinks of drawing nigh as being a very formal thing. (laughs) When you wanted to draw nigh to God in the Old Testament, you brought a sacrifice. When we draw nigh to God, we simply call on his name. He's always right there to answer us. Drawing nigh is not hard because he's always with us. The second part of this verse says, Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Doesn't that sound a little different than the kind of what we've been hearing? (laughs) That's because he changed directions in the middle of a thought here. Many commentators say they should have split this verse in half because he's obviously not talking to the same people. (laughs) He goes from, draw nigh to God and God will draw nigh to you. Now that pertains to everybody, sinner and saint. But then he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. The word there is for depravity. We are not sinners. (laughs) He's not talking to us. He's talking to the unbelieving Jews of that time. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. These were the people who were operating with one foot in the world and one foot supposedly following God. The Jewish unbelievers of that time thought that they and God were just fine. (laughs) <laughs> they didn't even recognize that he, he wasn't there so he tells them you need to change your mind you need to and change your actions because you're double-minded they profess to have something they didn't have they didn't have the relationship with god uh, verse 9 says be afflicted and mourn and weep let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into heaviness He's not talking to believers. I always thought, why would God want me to be afflicted? Why does he want me to be sad and weeping? He doesn't. He wants those who are lost to come to the realization that they're lost, that they don't have what they thought they had, that they actually do need a savior. They actually do need the mega grace that God is offering. And then verse 10, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. What does that mean? means to agree with what he says is true. And he shall lift you up. You see, when we understand who and what we are and who and what we belong to, <laughs> when we humble ourselves to him and say, yeah, I, I agree with you, we get lift it up. We sit at the right hand of the Father in Christ Jesus. We are not worms in the dirt. We're his bride. We're his sons. We're his daughters. We're his and he loves us with an everlasting love. What I hope you come away with today is more confidence in your ability to pray, your ability to operate in who you really are. Webster's says that confidence is a trusting or reliance, an assurance of the mind, or a firm belief in the integrity, stability, and veracity of another, or in the truth, and reality of a fact. When we understand who we are to him and that he has poured out his mega grace on him, when we understand that he only ever wants good for us, we can have confidence when we pray that the answer is already yes and amen, that he is at work on those things that we've asked him for, that he never leaves a prayer unanswered. What I hope you come away with is that We are powerful. Our prayers are powerful. We don't have one foot in the world and one foot in Christ. You can't do that, actually. (laughs) Because all of you stands in Christ Jesus. Your thoughts may come from the world, but you don't. You are in Christ, and you are in Christ alone. And you have the ability to change the world through praying. It's like Mark was saying earlier about praying for somebody. And all of a sudden... They're thinking of receiving Christ. Prayer is effective. Prayer works. I hate to say it though, because if prayer itself doesn't work, God does. <laughs> prayer doesn't work. God does. God responds to us with mega grace. Amen? Father God, I thank you that your word is true. I ask, Father God, that you cause us to see ourselves the way you see us. That we would understand that the glory that you have You have put in us and on us that your glory, even though the Old Testament says God will never share his glory, you do. You are lavish with glory, with your glory and your grace. You want everyone to be able to see your glory and grace through your kids, your beautiful bride. We thank you, Father God, for the truth of your word, that you are a God of mega grace, more abundant, ever exceeding grace. You always are there to say yes and amen to every prayer. And we thank you for it, in Jesus' name, amen.